0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear Elizabeth McCain.
1: You disgust me. And Jesus doesn't like it either.
0: (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to let everyone know we have set a date for returning to Atlanta. That's November 6th. And the theme that night is nasty. So we will need pitches, folks. You can email them to me at, at com. Other shows we have coming up that we are also taking pitches for still are Portland on September 22nd and 23rd. The themes are Bewildered and furious seattle september 24th and 25th the themes are the same bewildered and furious toronto october 9th the theme is god damn denver is october 14th the theme is help milwaukee is november 14th the theme is fuck this so pitch us pitch us pitch us at kevin at risk show.com also you know that feeling you get when you can get things done with just the click of a button It can't get more convenient than that. And now you can even get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk, thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Talk about convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then you just hand your mail to the mailman or drop it in a mailbox and you'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code R-I-S-K for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale... That calculates exact postage for letters and packages and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Miles Davis behind me now. You might have heard of him. And Tizzy... Uh, what? The fuck did I just say? <laughs> but other than that, this week's episode is live from DC2. We're going to share three of the four stories told that night here, and then the fourth one we'll include on a future episode. I was really battling the vertigo that night in D.C., and you know what? I still am. I'm still not well, but I now have a theory. I think that the cause is one of these antidepressants I'm on. It's called Cymbalta. So I'm looking at my options for getting off of that, and let's hope I'm right. But Vertigo or not, you can hear what a fantastic show we had. I'll tell you, DC audiences are just the best. And we're going to start with the fabulous Melissa Murphy, who told this story. When I heard her pitch, I was taking a long walk along the Hudson River, and I was reacting so vocally that passersby... Wondering what the hell was wrong with me And perhaps I'm about to put you In that very same position right now Here's Melissa Murphy At our show live in DC With a story we call True Grit
2: If you're going to be a hairdresser, you have to want to touch people. It sounds great, right? I always thought that I wanted to touch people a lot. Uh, I remember being about eight years old. I had my uh, Barbie fashion head, and I would go through her plasticky blonde locks, and I would pretend she was 80s pop star Debbie Gibson. And I loved it, and my favorite cosmetology school teacher, her name was Miss Carmen, and now she had some very harsh words for me about touching. She would say to me, girl, there are three things in your life nobody touches, okay? Nobody touches my child, nobody touches my money, and nobody touches my man. In that order. because I am this, like, white girl from the suburbs, and Miss Carmen was this fabulous, like, six-foot-tall woman with this big, curly hair. She was Puerto Rican. She was from the Bronx. She was fantastic, and she would say to me, I think you have what it takes, but, girl, you don't have that grit. You're like a soft-boiled egg, and it's my job to hard-boil you. <laughs> I was like, great, awesome. <laughs> I need that. I need that because when I went into cosmetology school, now everybody thinks, what are the stereotypes, right? It's for girls who are stupid. It's for girls who can't do anything else. No. Cosmetology school is hard. You need a lot of grit and wherewithal to get through it to be good. And I thought because I had gone to college that I'd be like so such a natural because I could write like a 30-page term paper. No. This is a skill set. You have to build it. I didn't have it, and I sucked, and it was horrible. And I would cry, and Miss Carmen would say, don't worry, girl, we're going to build you up. But you got to listen to everything I say. I'd say, okay. And I loved it. I loved the intimacy that you had when you had somebody in your chair that you would never have before, and they would tell you the most amazing things, completely unprovoked, like the the 20-year-old girl who would come and sit in my chair... And she'd say, you know, you really have to make me look good because I'm breaking up with my motherfucking boyfriend and if that cheater thinks that I'm gonna keep this baby, he's fucking out of his mind. And I'd say, oh, that's intimate. And then I'd have like a nice middle-aged lady and she'd come and she'd sit and she'd say, you know, my husband If he can't get it together and give me the penetrative sex that I need, that motherfucker's out of here. And you know what? If he can't get it together to get that Viagra, we're done. So that's really intimate. But I loved it. I love the fact that for a few hours you had somebody with you and they would tell you things they wouldn't tell anybody else. And that was such an honor. And that was so important to me to honor that and protect these people, to make them beautiful. And when they left, they would feel beautiful inside and out. And I tried very hard to be a professional, and I got better because I listened to everything Ms. Carmen said, and she never, never led me astray until one Saturday morning. I'm waiting for my client, and you never know who you're going to get because, unfortunately, in a cosmetology school, it's random. You know, people come. You don't get to stay. The other thing about this cosmetology school, unfortunately, was they weren't so into, let's say, hygiene or sanitation in any way. I cut my finger once, and I took it to my instructor. I said, I think I need stitches. And she said, you can work through that. And I'm bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and cutting hair and bleeding. And a couple days later, when I went to get the stitches, they're like, this is really infected. I said, okay, great. And the kids that came in, and they had lice. What are you going to do? You're not going to turn them away. You can't turn that $10 haircut away. So it's a Saturday morning. They call my name up. I go to the front. I see from far away, there's a lady. And from far away, she looks like a businesswoman. She's wearing a navy suit. She's got her hair slicked back. Looks like she just took a shower. It's kind of wet. She's got high heels on. I go, okay, great. This is great. I haven't worked on very many business ladies in cosmetology school before, so I'll go up there. And I went out and I reached to say hello and I see this woman. From up close, things look a little different. So her suit is covered in stains and stripped at the corner and her heels are all ground down. And her hair is not so much wet as it's, so greasy that it looks wet, and I think, oh, okay, okay, I can do this because what would Miss Carmen say? She'd say, "You got to have grit, and you've got to do this." And I can do this. And I took a Lady back. She said, "Hi, my name's Mary." I said, "Mary, welcome to my chair." And I put her in, and she looked at me and she said, "I know this looks really bad." She said, "I don't take care of myself very well. Can you help me?" I said, "I can." And I felt so protective of her because I'm not, I'm not one to say who's mentally ill or who, but she looked like she needed a lot of care, and I took that very seriously. So I said, okay, let's get in your hair. Now, the thing, when you're cutting hair, the first thing you have to do is you have to kind of get in that scalp, and you've got to kind of part it and feel the head, feel what you're working with. And I reach in, and my hands slide in. And when I pull them out, it looks like they're just doused in, like, olive oil. My nails are shiny. Everything's shiny. And I'm like, ooh. And I put my hands in again. And I part her hair. And I'm feeling around. And I feel like, if you've been to the grocery store, you know those, like, super bouncy balls you can get? They're really squishy. And I go, ugh. I felt these things all over the back of her scalp and I pull her hair aside and I see they're like marble sized boils and they're everywhere. They're everywhere. There's some the size of like a walnut and then there's some on the size of like a little yeah. And some of them are kind of oozing. And they're really, and so everything in me, I'm like, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. And I call over Miss Carmen. I say, should I do this? And she's like, you can handle this. And I'm like, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. But you know what? I felt like if I didn't do this, then Miss Carmen would think that I hadn't been hard boiled yet. And that was what I had to do. So I get in there. I say, okay, Mary, I'm going to take care of you. And I wash your hair. I get all the grease out. I put her in the chair, we're talking. I part her hair and I start trying to get my sections as clean as I can. The problem is is that when you've got all these things on the scalp, none of the sections are even. The hair gets getting pushed up. So I'm gonna take my comb and make a section. Cut, 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 make conversation as well. Comb, cut, 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 comb. And unfortunately, I'm such a perfectionist that my comb, I have to kind of... You kind of have to rake it against the scalp a little bit to get that section clean. <laughs> so I've got my comb in. And I'm talking, and I'm cutting. And I'm making the section, and I'm cutting. And I'm making the section, and I'm cutting. And, I'm section, and, I'm cutting, and I'm, I get to the middle of her head, and I'm just like, i got to get the section. And I go, and I hit one of the boils... At this angle, that just just erupts. <laughs> it just erupts. It's like a geyser, and the pus is coming out, and it's coming out, and it's coming out and I'm drenched, <laughs> and I'm drenched in like it's hot, it's hot, it's wet. It's <laughs> Why are you guys surprised that burning pus is hot and wet? It's hot and wet. <laughs> And it's soaking into my skin, probably from the center of my chest all the way down to my belly button, and it kind of—it smells like death. It's horrible. And and the thing—the thing about it was, you know, again, she had realized what had happened. She was very upset, and I had realized, of course, what had happened. I was very—but I, I said, I, I'm going to be very professional and I put down my comb and I said, I'll be right back. (laughs) And I went to the back and I ripped off my shirt and I swam myself down with all kinds of wipes and I'm just going, oh my God, oh my God, this is so disgusting, this is so disgusting, this is so disgusting. And then of course, Miss Carmen runs back and she goes, "Um, oh girl, maybe you shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, no, maybe I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) And the thing is, you know, You have a lot of, like, come to Jesus moments when you're covered in somebody else's body fluids. (laughs) I always think, And I learned that, (laughs) you know what? The good thing about this is I learned that there is, of course, always a time to prove yourself. You're gonna have to, to go get what you want. But there are definitely some times when you should hold your ground. And this was definitely one of them. And you know, I took that with me. I'm still a hairdresser today. <laughs> <Woo>! and, <laughs> still, I'm today. And you know, the, the greatest thing is, is that I know when to say no, and I know that you can develop grit in a number of ways. And I think I did it the right way by learning my limits and learning to protect myself as well. And I have to say, it has been—I've—I've I've never since been covered else in somebody else's body fluids at work and for me (laughs) that is the definition of career success (laughs) thank you
0: in 2010, I split up with my husband. Uh, We had been together for nine years. We were officially married. Uh, But we split up in 2010 and all of a sudden I was dating again and I was like, oh gosh, it's been since like I turned 30 or so that I've like ever bothered taking hair off my body because I've been with the same person for so long and we got lazy about that sort of thing. So I was like, I, now that I'm broken up, I'm on the market again, I'm gonna go get my anus waxed. Uh, you know, I thought, I'm too old for nair. That was my, uh, the way I used to do it when I was in my 20s. So I go, and I guess I should've specified. I thought it was a gay men's spa, so I would assumed I'd be with an attractive young man taking uh, my anus hair off. But instead, it was this like little Russian looking uh, like tank of an older woman. And she was very rough with me. She she got me into the position like you would with a baby, you know, where you put the, the legs up to like change their diaper. She's very rough and she did not have a good bedside manner. I was like, is this gonna hurt? She was like, of course it is. She starts dumping hot wax on my anus. I'm like, ah! And she rips. And at that point, like, it, there there are those moments of feeling pain where it's a little... Mo- You'll you have a moment where you're not feeling anything at all because your central nervous system has said, there's too much information. We're going to have to release this on, on a delay. So, you know, for a moment, I'm nothing. And then a moment later, I'm like... And she said, what would your mother think if she could see you now? And I started to get a little turned on. Because, you know, when someone says something that dominant and everything, I can't, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. She knew just the way to like shame the fuck out of me. <laughs> All right, our next storyteller. It's a thrill to have her on. She has a show called A Lesbian Bell Tells. It's one woman show. Uh, she also works uh, with Story District. She's a counselor and an interfaith minister. Please welcome to the stage Elizabeth McCann. <laughs>
1: Hey, y'all. I grew up in a really traditional Southern family in Northeast Mississippi in a tiny town called Okolona. My parents were older, around 40 when I was born, and they already had three kids who were 17, 12, and 9 when I came along. Being the baby, I was really close to Mama. She'd say, darling, you're a surprise, but a sweet one. mama was prim and proper and very very religious she was southern baptist born and then she opted for the frozen chosen and became episcopalian (laughs) daddy was the town banker extroverted with charm and charisma and he was quite the male chauvinist mama and daddy expected me to have good grades good manners and eventually to marry a good old southern boy Well, when I was 30, after dating men for many, many years, I told Mama that I'd fallen in love with a woman and identified as a lesbian. Well, she had a fit. No, no, this can't be. This is not who you are. This is just crazy, ludicrous. You disgust me. And Jesus doesn't like it either. Well, said, Mama, this is who I am, and Jesus was all about love, so I think he's fine with it. And, <laughs> and then when she told Daddy, he was just furious. I can't believe this. What's wrong with you, girl? Why can't you find a man? I can't believe I paid for that expensive girls' school I sent you to in Virginia. <laughs> You are out of this family and out of the will. I was devastated. My whole family cut me off. My older brother told me I was mentally ill. How could my own flesh and blood reject me like this? And then it gets worse. About two years later, still after this cutoff, I get a phone call from my sister and she tells me that daddy has died. A heart attack in Boston and mama had a massive stroke the same night I'm stunned well I somehow make it to daddy's funeral in Mississippi and I'm filled with all these emotions rage and loss and shock and meanwhile mama's in ICU up in Boston and when I got home I got this letter that mama had written the day before daddy died And she said he had softened his heart, and they wanted me to come home for Thanksgiving. And he died the next day. Would we have reconciled? I'll never know what might have happened. Well, I tried to reconnect with Mama after Daddy died, but she was living with my sister up in Boston, and my sister was very controlling and didn't like for me to visit very much. And I tried to move on with my life, but... I was still so devastated and I had no one to grieve my father's death with the irony is I had this booming private practice as a psychotherapist here in the DC area and I did grief workshops and workshops on coming out and forgiveness and I dated some women who were kind of unavailable and I thought oh this lesbian thing is crazy I'm just not I'm gonna give up and (laughs) but I didn't and lots of lesbians i went to uh i went to my astrologist and she did this reading you know i'm into woo woo and she tells me about the law of attraction you know this idea that if we put this idea out to the universe about what we want and we believe we deserve to have it that we can manifest it so i said a prayer to the goddess and asked her to bring me my soulmate Well, that night, I had a dream that I met this cute, soft butch, strawberry blonde with a smile that lit up the room. And I woke up feeling like I was about to meet my soulmate. And so the next weekend, I go to a good old-fashioned lesbian potluck out in Fairfax. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody. And, you know, at Lesbian Potlucks, there's always lots of hummus, and and there were lots of retired military lesbians that night. Now, I appreciate their service, really, I do, but um, not really my type, and I'm thinking maybe this is going to be an early evening, so I'm about to go home, and then the door opens. And in walks the strawberry blonde, the cute soft butch with the smile that lights up the room. She's the woman from my dream. Really? And she walks right over to me and says, Hi, I'm Marie. Hi, Marie, I'm I'm Elizabeth. Where are you from in the south? Oh, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. (laughs) And where are you from? Sounds like you're from way down there. Oh yeah <laughs> I'm from I'm from Mississippi you can just call me a recovering bail from a long line of unrecovered bells. bless their hearts <laughs> well we hit it off and I call Marie the next day and we have our first date like four days later and we've been together for 15 years now <laughs> and, and married married for seven <laughs> I love so many things about Marie, but I love that we share this understanding of our eccentric southern culture. Things like sipping sweet tea on the porch, our mama's passive aggressive behavior, and all the different meanings of the phrase, bless her heart. So I wish I could tell you that things got better with my family and that my mother came to accept me, but she didn't. She refused to meet Marie. And I visited her a few times, and I had this dream, and y'all know I pay attention to my dreams, and I dreamed that she was about to die, so I decided to go visit her again. And I decided I would take a risk, and I would ask her a question I'd been wondering, and I said, Mama, what is the hardest thing about having a lesbian daughter? And in an almost whisper, she said, people make fun of people like you. Wow. My mother was ashamed of me. I said, well, Mama, I'm happy, and I wish you could just be happy for me. Well, I thought you wanted a husband and children. No, Mama, that was your dream for me. It was never mine. Well, you never told me that. Well, I had told her this many times, but So, about 6 months later, I get another hard phone call and mama's had another stroke and she's dying. And so Marie and I fly to Boston, and this is the first time Marie had met my siblings. We go to the hospital, and I go to mama at her bedside and I tell her that I love her, that I was sorry we'd lost so much time, and that I wanted us to forgive each other. I gave her permission to go. And even though she was in a coma, I saw these tears roll down her cheeks. And as she took her last breath, I felt deep sadness, but also deep peace, because I was released from her judgment. So the next day, we fly to Mississippi to the funeral. And after the service, Marie and I go back to my childhood home where all the church ladies are clucking about. And my sister jumps up and says, Oh, everyone, this is is Marie. She's our family friend. No, Marie is my partner, not our family friend. And then my mama's sorority sister, Shirley, walks in. They were tridelts, that's delta, 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 can I help you, help you, help you, at Ole Miss, class of 46. And I'd known Shirley my whole life, and I loved her because she was the opposite of mama. Shirley was always extroverted and flamboyant, curious, bordering on nosy. And of course, she's perfectly coiffed in her black ultra-suede funeral suit, her snow-white hair and aquamarine eyes. And Shirley's not afraid to show a little cleavage and a little leg at 77. And she says, Darling, Lizbeth, I hear you brought your partner. I guess you don't mean business partner. <laughs> oh, Shirley, well, hello. No, Maria's my life partner, and we've been together for two years now well 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 nice to meet you marie i'm so glad you don't wear those big old manny shoes (laughs) now elizabeth come on out on the patio and i got some questions to ask you wow so we go on the patio and she says so did your mama know and what'd she think Yes, I came out to Mama about eight years ago, and she was horrified, and it was really hard, Shirley, and she refused to meet Marie. Oh, I'm so sorry. Marie's just darling. But, you know, she stopped talking about you about eight years ago, and I thought you had cancer or something. And then when I heard through the grapevine about your situation <laughs> from my friend Liz... I was shocked, because you always such a pretty girl with boyfriends and everything. But I was secretly thrilled. I thought, Cooper's daughter's a lesbian. This is the juiciest gossip in the whole state of Mississippi. (laughs) And I've never known any real live lesbians. (laughs) Well, Shirley, now you know, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, listen, darling, y'all are both very attractive girls. You are a little bit more feminine, so I just wonder, uh, who's the man? (laughs) Is Marie the man? How's it work? And I'm tickled and horrified. (laughs) Now, Shirley, you know that Southern ladies don't talk about what goes on behind closed doors, but just use your imagination. Well, I'll be lying in bed tonight and I'll be wondering, I'll be wondering, what do lesbians do? (laughs) Well, listen, darling, I want you and Marie to come visit me. I want to get to know Marie. I was so touched and so we did. For the next 10 years, we visited Shirley lots in her lovely colonial home down in the Mississippi Delta in Indianola, Mama's hometown. And the last time I remember we were there, she had had a stroke and she was a little frail. And as she was telling us goodbye, she walked us to the car and she said, listen, y'all, I've been hearing about this gay marriage thing and I know y'all got married in San Francisco and I don't really understand it, and I don't think it's biblical, but I want you girls to know that I love you like you're my own. And you're welcome to come to my home anytime. Oh, thank you, Shirley. We love you too. Thank you so much for your stories and your laughter and your outrageous questions. Because you ask me questions, Mama never could. And sadly, we lost our dear Shirley two years ago. She died peacefully in her sleep. I miss her so, but I'm so grateful for her friendship because she helped me heal this motherload of rejection I've been carrying around for so long. And last summer, I performed my one-woman show in the Fringe Festival, A Lesbian Bell Tells, and I'm gonna do it again in November, so stay, stay tuned. And Shirley's one of my favorite characters. And after the first show, this guy comes up to me, and he's a gay southern psychic. from. <laughs> <laughs> Got to love that, right? He's from Alabama. And he says, Miss Elizabeth, I just loved your show, and I just have to ask you, are you a spiritual lady? And I said, hell yeah, I live in Tacoma Park. I am high, woo-woo. <laughs> And he says, well, I'm a medium, and I have to tell you that your friend Miss Shirley was on stage with you the whole time, and she was just beaming love at you, and she wanted me to tell you she was so proud of you. And I do think that Shirley was there. And maybe she's here tonight. Well, I don't have much of a relationship with my biological family, but I have this great family of choice with Marie, our dogs, and our friends. And thank you. And, you know, I've had to give up all hope for a better past and live more in the present. And I support my LGBT community as a grief counselor and interfaith minister. And I've decided that at 51 now, I live with so much gratitude for all the gifts in my grief. Thank you.
0: amazing. I remember when I first came out to my parents I had known I was gay basically all throughout my childhood Uh, but when I was 12 years old I started saying it out loud to myself because the movie E.T. had come out and I had such a crush on Elliot. In other words I identified with the brown thing from another planet. So, uh, I, I w- at that year, I was like, well, I guess I can tell the folks now that I, I've told myself. But I was only 12, and I remember that summer, at one point, uh, Marvin Gaye singing Sexual Healing was on the radio. It was like number one at that time. And my mom came into the room, and she flicked the radio off and said to me and my sister, when that song comes on the radio, the radio goes off. So I was like, oh, my God, 12 is not the time to be telling mom. (laughs) So by the time I was in high school, I had started to come out to so many of my friends that I was like, I got to move on to family. But I wanted to make sure that my family had secured a place at New York University for me first. (laughs) because I had heard that there was a lot of gay people in New York and that's where I wanted to go. So we put all sorts of effort into securing that I could go to NYU, all sorts of scholarships and student loans and all that sort of thing. Then when it was a sure thing, I was like, all right, now I can tell them because I'm going to be leaving in a month. Uh, Well, I got so nervous that day, 18 years old, so nervous that I decided I had to write the whole thing out on big index cards. And then after the speech about me being gay, I was going to give questions and answers. But they would be questions I had anticipated. So it would be like, you're probably thinking, Kevin, aren't you too young to be yada, yada, yada? And then at the very end, the last thing I do is give them the name of psychiatrist that they can see if they're too fucked up about what I am. And my mom cried all throughout the speech. I couldn't look up. I, I was just looking down. at We were on the screened-in porch. I was just looking down at the, at the cards the entire time, reading off questions and answers. <laughs> then I handed them the name and number of a psychiatrist they could talk to, and my dad was like, wait, you're sending us to a shrink? <laughs> they said, we don't need to involve a shrink. We, uh, we were okay. Uh, A couple days later, the conversation had not come up at all. It was as if it hadn't happened. And I said to my father, uh, why haven't we talked at all about what I said to you the other day? And he was saying, well, we don't normally talk about your brother's and sister's heterosexuality. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, I mean, they seemed to be adapting. Uh, so soon i was off to school and uh, it's taken them a long time but they're they're getting used to some parts of it (laughs) all right the next person i would like to bring to the stage they don't know they the only reason this show exists is because they don't know what the internet is they they don't even they you know they know the general idea of the internet but they have no idea how to work it and so hence this show. Our final storyteller tonight. He is an actor, you can find him on Twitter at the Thomas Keegan. He's currently in the play Women Laughing Alone with Salad at the Woolly Mammoth. It opens in September. Everyone, please welcome to the stage, Thomas Keegan!
3: My need fella. So, in the summer of 2006, I worked as a seasonal police officer in a small little sleepy town on the Delaware shore called Dewey Beach. Oh, good, you've heard of it. So for those of you who haven't, Dewey Beach covers about three-tenths of a square mile of the Delaware shore. It's nestled between Rehoboth Beach and Bethany Beach. And yeah, woo. Uh, it has a year-round population of around 300, but a summertime population of 30,000. So to put that in perspective, DC's got a population of like 650,000. So imagine right now there being 6.5 million people here. Yeah, it's terrific. Dewey Beach is a -a one-of-a-kind place. Those 30,000 people come to mainly get fucked up and let loose, and they do it, man. They drink, and they drug, and they fuck everywhere. They fuck on the beach. They fuck in their sandy, borrowed beds. They fuck in their cars. I swear to God, they fuck on top of their cars. They fuck in the balconies of the hotels that overlook Route 1 while there's summer traffic. They don't give a fuck. And they fight, and they scream, and they fall off of balconies and break their arms, and they run from the police, and they nearly drown, and they they do all manner of chaotic things. And, yeah, it's terrific. It's a lot of fun. It's wild, and it's exciting, and it's electric. Uh, but like any other place like that, like Mardi Gras, like Carnival, like your 21st birthday, it's exciting, and then the sun goes down, and it just gets a little bit dangerous. And... Uh, After a crash course in the Constitution for two weeks, I was given a pat on the ass and a pair of handcuffs and a badge and assigned to the 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. shift and tasked with the unenviable responsibility of somehow trying to manage and corral all of that chaos and, and that danger. But... I, uh, on the night in question, I headed into town early because I had the opportunity to run radar in a car with my buddy Dave. Dave was a full-time officer I'd worked with this, the year before as a seasonal. And he was just a different kind of guy. I just liked being around him. He, uh, he, he was different from the other cops I worked with, most of whom were southern good old boys who liked their NASCAR and their drinking and their duck hunting and occasionally saying the N-word. And you kind of had to swallow that shit because when the shit went down and you were in trouble, those were the guys who came running to help you. They came to your rescue. But Dave was different. He had a sense of compassion and a sense of quiet, a sense of peace. And you could just talk to him. In fact, one day the year before, we had, been, we had driven a suspect to court and then to jail and then driven back into Dewey in the early morning hours. And we got back. Dave dropped me off in my car, and he, he just looked up and said, Hey, man, look at that. And I looked through the windshield of the cruiser, and at the end of Rodney Street coming up over the dunes was the sunrise. (laughs) I just kind of smiled and sat back in the seat and for a few minutes we sat there quietly and watched the sun come up over the ocean and over the dunes and it was strangely romantic. It was just peaceful and and spiritual Uh, and, uh, and we didn't say anything about it but I know we were both glad to have that moment together in this place that was usually so full of chaos and violence. And so on this night, I jumped at the chance to come in a little bit early and run Radar with Dave. So I'm driving into Dewey about 7 p.m. The sun's still high in the sky. And Dewey's fucking weird during the day if you're used to it at night. It's like, it's like an amusement park after dark when nobody's there and the rides are stopped. Or like a fun house with the lights on. It's just sort of twisted and not quite right. There's something off about it. It's like you're always waiting for something to happen. But I, uh, I grabbed a couple of coffees from Wawa and jumped in the Chevy Tahoe with Dave and we shot the shit and rode some speeding tickets. And then... Uh, yeah, sorry. So after a while, we got a, a dispatch uh, over to Rehoboth, the neighboring town. Their police were busy with another call and they needed some help with a medical call. So we threw the lights and sirens on and drove way too fast over there. We pulled up to a little summer cottage... And there was an ambulance in the driveway and a big, heavy-set paramedic with this big, thick, blonde handlebar mustache. I knew him from all the medical calls we got in Dewey. And he uh, came out of the car, you know, what's up, man, what do we got? He explained to us there was an 85-year-old female inside who had collapsed. Yeah, man, she ain't had no breath, no beat for going on four minutes. We're gonna give him some CPR and shock her and then we'll take her back to BB, the hospital. There was something about the way he said it that was sort of resigned to the fact that she was already gone which took a little bit of the pressure off if I'm honest. I had never given CPR before and this was an unusual kind of call. But we walked into the house and the first thing that hit me was the smell. It just hit me like a wall. It was this acrid stink of bile and rotten seafood. And the air was thick with the summer humidity and the salt air. There was no air conditioning in this cottage. There was a single ceiling fan in the kitchen where she'd collapsed that just felt like it was mixing soup. The air was so thick. And I looked down at the old woman on the floor. She'd had her, uh, her thin cotton house coat cut open so the paramedics could work on her, and she was exposed to these five men in the room, something I had to feel she wouldn't have liked. And she had, I realized the smell came from her vomit. She had vomited uh, the crab meat that she was eating, and the paramedics were cleaning it off her chest so we could begin CPR. And I got tapped to start chest compressions, which I'd never done before, but we had pretty good training. So I got down to my knees next to her and I put my hands on her chest and gave the first compression. And I felt her ribs crack under my weight. They shattered, they splinter. Which they tell you, they try to warn you in the CPR class, that's gonna happen. But what they don't prepare you for is hearing that sound come from another person and seeing them lie there still underneath you. She didn't jump up, she didn't scream, fuck, get the fuck off of me. She just lay there like I did nothing. I must have frozen for a second because that big heavy-set paramedic with the handlebar mustache tapped me on the shoulder and goes, Hey bro, you got to keep going. And so I did. I gave compressions for what felt like hours. I'm sure it was only a few minutes. We gave her breaths and more compressions and they got the AED, the portable defibrillator set up. And we all stood back as it beeped and spoke in this strange mechanic voice. And then finally shocked her and her body moved for a split second the first time I'd seen it move. And then it beeped some more and it spoke some more in that mechanic voice and it shocked her again. And after the fourth shock, it beeped again and then it spoke in that mechanic voice something we hadn't heard yet, which was no shock needed. And I thought to myself, is that it? I mean, maybe she was dead when I got here, but is that it? She's just gone? And I turned to that paramedic and through that big handlebar mustache, he kind of smiled and went, we got her. (laughs) I looked back down at her and sure enough, Her chest was rising and falling, imperceptibly, nearly, but it was a hell of a lot different from the stillness that had been there before. It was just enough life to know that she was there. And they threw her on the stretcher and they tossed her in the back of the ambulance and Dave and I walked out and we stood in the driveway and watched the ambulance literally pull off into the sunset. Again, just standing there silently together, dealing with the fact that we just kept a life from leaving the world. For better or worse, you know, I don't know what happened to her when she got to the hospital, but, but it felt of moment. It felt like it mattered. It, it, it felt different than writing a speeding ticket or, uh, you know, arresting somebody for public drunkenness or, or showing up at the same house for a domestic violence call for the third time in a week. It felt like we'd actually had an impact, whether we had or not, who knows. And so I turned to Dave and I said, Man, how the fuck are we supposed to go back to running radar? And he goes, man, let's just go back to Dewey. So we did. We hopped in that Chevy Tahoe, and we drove the mile back to Dewey in the quiet. And I thought to myself, man, you know, this job is so full of chaos and bullshit and knuckleheads that maybe it's moments like this that make this job tolerable. Maybe, maybe if enough moments like this come along, you can do this for your whole life. And I jumped on my police issue bicycle because normally I was a bike cop. And... Uh, I was in great shape. And, uh, and I jumped on the bike, and I, I felt pretty good riding off as the sun went down in Dewey. And then the rest of the shift, the next few hours, were pretty normal for Dewey. So there were fights and uh, arrests, and people threw up, and, and they, they pissed in public, and they shit in public. They do that. And they puked in public, and they bled in public. And, and it was a normal shift for the most part until about 1 a.m., which is right around the time bars let out in Dewey, last call in Delaware is one, so most people are out of the bars and on the streets by two. I got a phone call on my cell phone from my lieutenant who didn't normally work nights and he certainly didn't normally call my cell phone. So I answered it and said, what's up LT? And he explained to me he had a call he was on in the south part of town, it's sort of a darker part of Dewey as you head in toward Bethany. And uh, he needed some assistance but he didn't want me to broadcast it over the radio. He was my boss, I didn't ask any questions so I jumped on my bike and rode the few blocks down as I turned the corner, it was really dark. The only light there was this yellow security light on the edge of the hotel. Underneath that light was parked his navy blue Crown Victoria with two of the red and blue lights going on it. And he was standing in front of it with his hand on the back of a young woman. The young woman was wearing a spaghetti strap tank top and these sleeping shorts. And she had blonde hair that was kind of covering her face. And she was hunched over with his hand on her back and she was stock still as I rode up. It looked like she was just a statue. And then as I got closer I realized that she was moving. She had this soft shake to her. She was sobbing. And I got off my bike and as I walked up she looked up at me. What I saw was that her bottom lip was split open. She was bleeding. The teeth behind it were cracked in half. And the left side of her face around her orbital bone had been so badly beaten that it looked like hamburger meat with a plum in the middle her eye was so swollen that it was closed and she was looking at me through just this one right eye and there was nothing there she was broken and deader than that grandmother laying on the floor in Rehoboth a few hours earlier and it just shook me and finally my lieutenant walked up to me and snapped me out of it and explained to me that earlier in the night he pulled over a car in which this young woman had been a passenger. She had just finished explaining to him that the driver of that car, whom my lieutenant had let go with a warning for driving with his lights off at night, had proceeded from that traffic stop to the hotel room that they were sharing and after being rejected, had beaten this young woman until she submitted to his sexual advances. He had raped her, and then he had left and gone to the bar. And my lieutenant pulled up the license plate of the vehicle, I broadcasted that out over the radio and then he pulled up the license photo of the driver. He was a white male in his early 30s, he had brown balding hair and a red brown scraggly beard but the thing that stood out most were these little rodent eyes in his head. Even in his license photo there was a blankness to them, they were black, couldn't tell you what color they were really but they looked black in the photo and uh it burned pretty immediately on my brain and he said we got to find this guy of course a couple minutes later i got a call from one of the units i supervised they had found the vehicle parked at the end of dickinson street at the end of which for those of you who are familiar with dewey is the lighthouse and the rudder two bars that stand kidney corner across from each other on the bay so i told them to stay with the car and not to let anybody get in it i rode down to the end of dickinson street left my bike there and stood between the two bars hoping i'd see this guy as he came out during bar rush I didn't have to wait long because in about five minutes, I noticed a commotion in the bar on the deck, and four or five bouncers are carrying this guy out, absolutely putting the boots to him, just pummeling him on the way out. And these weren't those bouncers, this is the beach. These guys were working for their drinking money. They're not trying to hurt anybody. But uh, I ran up to my buddy, Matt, who was the head of security. I said, yo, Matt, what's going on, man? He goes, that motherfucker bit me. I was like, he bit you? Jesus. So the other four bouncers pour down the front steps, still kicking the shit out of this guy. And I said, stop, Dewey Beach police, clear the way, clear the way, whatever the fuck I said. And the bouncers jump off of him and I jump on top of him and he swings at me immediately and I, I, he misses me and I swung at him and I didn't miss and uh, threw handcuffs on him and roll him over and past that balding head and scraggly beard, I see those two black rodent eyes staring at me. Sure as shit just like that, right into my lap. <sighs> so I stand him up, I say, Dewey Beach Police, you're under arrest. Oh man, I felt so fucking tough. <laughs> I gave him to another officer to watch while I took a couple statements from the bouncers. That lasted about 10 seconds because I look over to my left and hear another commotion and he's slipped the hand of the officer who's holding me and he's running handcuffed behind his back in a cut-off T-shirt and jean shorts down Dickinson Street towards Route 1. <laughs> and for a split second, i don't know what to do it's it's so ridiculous looking and then i'm like oh shit i should probably chase him i should chase him that's that's what we do when people run from the police we run after him so i start running after him and i i pretty quickly pass the cop i'd given him to and i get within 10 feet of him and i yell stop dewey beach police you're fucking wearing my handcuffs he doesn't stop so i hit him with full force whatever 200 and something pounds i weigh and we hit the ground him in his cutoff t-shirt landing on his shoulder and his face and we skid across the pavement for a few feet badly enough that when we got to the hospital they asked if he'd been in a motorcycle accident and i roll him over to keep him from resisting anymore because now i don't know what he's gonna do he's bit somebody he's run from me in handcuffs he's obviously raped this woman as far as i can tell i roll him over and he gathers a mouthful of blood and gravel and spits it up at my face and i turn and he misses me But I throw my forearm across his face to keep him from doing it again. And that's when I feel in his beard the scrape on my arm from the fall. I immediately pull back because I'm bleeding and he's bleeding. And he smiles at me with those little beady eyes and he goes, I already got you, bro. I got that bug. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. I never heard it before anyway, but I did know in the moment he meant he had AIDS. And everything stopped for a second. (laughs) And there's a street light on in Dickinson Street, and now there's a couple police lights, and everybody's gathered around. And I thought, did I just die in the middle of Dewey fucking beach? I just got shot on Dickinson Street. And I couldn't slam his head into the pavement. And I couldn't put my fists on him and I couldn't throw him into the traffic of Route One. Instead, I stood him up and I loosened his handcuffs so they weren't too tight and I placed him in a cruiser so we could have a safe ride back to the police department. And I walked the one block back and when I got there I washed out my cut and we fingerprinted him and we brought the victim down and she identified him, my lieutenant identified him. And we booked him and we put him in another cruiser to take him to BB Hospital in Lewis. When we got there we got a toxicology report and after what were the longest 15 or 20 minutes of my life I found out that he did not have AIDS. They still put me on a cocktail of drugs that kept me throwing up for two weeks but at the moment, it was, it was a pretty big sigh of relief. And so we throw him into the cruiser one more time for the drive to Georgetown and then over to Sussex County Correctional Institution after he's had his initial hearing. And the whole way, he's running his mouth. Motherfucking cops, fuck you. It's a fucking bar fight. What's your fucking problem? You had to fucking beat me? That's bullshit. Whole way, 10, 15 minutes. Finally, I turned around and said, man, you're charged with first degree rape. That's fuck. What the fuck did she say? I didn't rape nobody. That's fucking bullshit. What the- That's no fucking way I raped somebody. He's running his mouth for a few more minutes, and then finally he kind of goes quiet. I turn to my buddy Brooks. You know, it's 6 a.m. now. The sun's coming up. We're both exhausted. It's been the craziest night of my life. I'm just like, thank God he's finally quiet. We're a couple of minutes away from the courthouse, and he says the last thing I ever heard him say, which was, man, how am I supposed to tell my wife I raped somebody? Brooks looked over at me and nodded to my breast pocket I took out my notepad and my pen and I wrote down the sentence Man, how am I supposed to tell my wife I raped somebody I wrote the date and the time and my badge number and I slipped it back in my pocket with the pen and I spent the next five minutes on the way to court and a lot of time after that trying to feel good about that trying to feel that thing we felt in the driveway of like, fuck yeah, we did something we got this guy He's going away. We'd Mirandized him. He just confessed to rape in the back of a police car. And that feeling never came, and it has never come since. The only thing I saw as we drove while the sun came up was the face of that blonde-haired woman standing in the dark in police lights with her teeth cracked and her eye falling out of her head, broken forever. She was never coming back. I realized, no, this job is not for me. I don't have what it takes to live with that level of unmitigated violence and rage and sociopathy or the potential for it every single day. I'm not one of those good old boys, and I don't have it. I just want to watch the sun rise over the dune with my buddy in the quiet. Thanks, guys.
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Lord Huron behind me now. And don't forget, Portland, Oregon, we will be in your town on September 22nd and 23rd. Pitch us your stories. The themes are Bewildered and Furious. We're doing those same themes in Seattle on September 24th and 25th. Then we're in Toronto on October 9th. The theme that night is God Damn... Then on to Denver on October 14th. The theme that night is help. And uh, then there's Atlanta on November 6th. The theme is nasty. And Milwaukee is November 14th. The theme is fuck this, pitch me at kevin at risk show.com. If you want to learn how to do this storytelling stuff, go to the storystudio.org. It doesn't matter if you're not in New York or Los Angeles, because we have our Intro to Storytelling video course. Uh, You can watch the video lectures in your own time. There are stories that are annotated that you can download. There are stories that are analyzed right there on camera. You can't imagine a more complete and thorough and practical, hands-on storytelling workshop in a video course that you can buy and and refer back to all the time it's intro to storytelling wow your crowd and it's at thestorystudio.org folks today's the day take a risk Other shows we're still taking pitches for are Portland on Fuck My Ass. Well, I guess remains to be seen if that'll happen when I go to Portland. <laughs>